0: Good morning. We are continuing our series in the book of Exodus. Today's passage is Exodus chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 7. I'll be reading excerpts beginning with 6.1 to 6.13, and then picking up verse 26 through 7.7. As you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of his authority over us. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, And you, shall, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Picking back up in verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, everybody. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here. I uh, just want to add my welcome to everybody else's. We're glad you're here today. And... Uh, Just want to make a quick announcement. Uh, For all the men in the room, you guys have heard multiple times that there's a men's retreat coming up. I just want to double down on that with with you for a second. If you are a member here, if you are coming here to church, if you're investigating being a part of Christ's community, this is a perfect opportunity for you. You know, a lot of times when we come to a new church or a new situation or a part of a church, one of the key questions—there's really two things, I think— we want to know how we fit, how we serve, how we can serve and like have a meaningful part in the church, and also how are we going to connect relationships and things like that. This is a great opportunity especially for the connection piece, but also to learn from God's word from a really good Bible teacher in the context of a community where you might be able to serve too. A lot of the relationships that we form at these men's retreats give way to opportunities to serve later on too. So The guy who's teaching, John Bricker, good friend, good friend of our church, good man, Acts 29 pastor in Bloomington for a long time. Now he's planting that church with Tyler Edwards and Stacey Edwards in uh, Metamora. He's going to come and teach us from God's Word. I would encourage you to come. Students, you guys can come too. Every year we have a few students. It's always fun to have you guys there. You guys should be there. It's a lot of fun. Um, So if you're on the fence, let me kick you over. Come on, come with me, all right? That's it. That's my public service announcement. Um, This morning, I'm coming into the pulpit. I don't know how you guys have um, experienced the last week. I'm coming in with a heavy heart. Israel and Palestine is very heavy on my heart. I have friends, a lot of friends who are in that region, people who are involved uh, with ministry uh, there in that area. Um, Just this last week, I I reached out to one of those friends, and, and he sent me a series of pictures from where he actually was not... He's, he's located there in the Middle East, but at the time that I was texting him, he was in Turkey. He was helpi- He's currently helping out with preparing the refugees whose homes were completely demolished in the recent earthquake um, to get ready for the winter. He just showed, he- there was one picture that he had of a man he- and him just embracing in front of his house that was literally nothing but rubble. He was the only survivor. So it's a, th- this is... This is heavy. And and I also know about the earthquakes that are going on in a lot of your lives in this room. My own life earthquakes, right? And so this morning, before I dove into the scripture, I really just wanted to pray. I wanted to turn to the Lord. And that's what we're going to see here in our passage today, too, to turn to the Lord. So just pray with me for a moment. Lord, I, I do have a heavy heart. I am hopeful in you. You are the God who knows the end from the beginning. You are sovereign over all these things. You, you see what's going on in Israel and Palestine, and Lord, we just cry out, have mercy. Lord, we, you see what happened in Turkey and what happened in Afghanistan with the earthquakes. You, you know, have mercy. You see the broken relationships in this church, the difficult situations, the bad diagnoses, and all the things in between. Lord, have mercy on us. We need a word from you. We need your word that gives life, our true food and true bread. You said in your word that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so come and fill our mouths, fill our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, happy topic today. We're going to talk about failure. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, I was thinking about failure in my own life. Um, do you guys, I don't know if you guys do this, but uh, this, is, this is a little bit of Craig's psychosis. Um, when I think about times in my past that are particularly embarrassing failures, I will like physically like, you know, like kind of cringe, like, ooh, I hate it. I was thinking about one of those failures back in middle school. It seems to be in a time in my life where a lot of those took place. Can I get an amen? Like a little, you know, middle school, junior high, and uh, I decided I wanted to run for student council president. And I got this idea in my mind that the, the key to success, the way I was going to win everybody's vote, y'all, I can't even, it hurts to tell you, I, I rapped. I made a rap about voting for Craig Cody. And then I lost the election, which I should have. It was embarrassing. Who would have voted for a candidate like me? Oh, man. How do you deal with failure? That's a funny one. There's obviously much more significant ones, more serious ones. More importantly, I think, how does God deal with our failures in life? We're going to see that today. Here's what we're going to see in our passage. And I know it was long. We're going to try to piece it together. It's a beautiful passage. I wanted to string it all together because structurally, and especially in the original language, you can see it, but structurally, it all actually fits together. Here's what we're going to see. What to do when we fail. Why we should do that when we fail, and uh, what the outcome looks like. Okay, so what to do when we fail? Why we should do that when we fail, and what the outcome looks like. Let's let's dive in. So, I'm actually what to do when we fail. I'm going to start just a smidge before our passage today. If you have a Bible, I really would encourage you to open it. It's you're going to need to look at it today. It's Exodus, the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, where We're in chapter 6, but we're going to start at the end of chapter 5. So chapter 5, starting at verse 22, verses 22 and 23. Let me give you a little bit of context here. Um, Where to begin? So God's people moved from Canaan to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. God opened a door through Joseph, the son of Jacob, and they brought all of God's people to Egypt so that they could survive this famine, and God provided for them there. Long time passed, change of regime, change of leadership, and now Israel is slaves. That's where we kind of picked it up um, here in Exodus. Moses, sent by God, chosen by God to be a rescuer of his people. We've tracked his story a little bit. At the time that he thought that he was going to be Moses's deliverer, it ends up falling, he ends up failing and falling flat on his face and runs for it. He runs to the desert. Now he's 80 years old. God meets him in a burning bush, calls him, says, you are my chosen messenger to go to before Pharaoh and call my people out. I'm going to bring them out. When God meets Moses in that burning bush, he commissions him, right? He sends him in all of his weaknesses, in all of his limits. He's the man of God. The one chosen by God, and so that was the that was the end. It kind of carried us into chapter four, through chapter four, then and the next part of and then all of chapter five. It flows like this. I think I put it up here on your screen. At the end of chapter four, so I'm just catching you up. We're just kind of catching the wave of the, of the narrative here. Okay, so end of chapter four. Israel accepts Moses, and believes him, and then in chapter five, verses one through five. Uh, pharaoh rejects moses moses makes an appeal to pharaoh and then pharaoh says to moses who is the lord who is this lord that's telling me to leave which is really one of the key questions we're asking out of exodus right who is the lord then the next part pharaoh makes everything even worse for israel the same amount of bricks same quota no straw much more difficult in verses 15 through 18 of chapter 5, Israel, the Israel leadership actually approaches Pharaoh, appeals to him. Pharaoh rejects the, Israel, Israeli, the Israelite leadership. And so by the end of chapter 5, and I kind of wanted you to see this, is from the end of chapter 4, where Israel accepts Moses, by the end of chapter 5, Israel rejects Moses. That's where we're at. Just like that. What's not so obvious here as you look through chapter 5 is that Moses has specifically failed. If you compare what God had told Moses to do with what Moses actually did, you'd see that. You see where he makes mistakes. He doesn't obey God. So here's the question. We're kind of circling back around to it. What do we do when we fail? What do you do? What do you do when you fail? Moses felt the sting of failure before. I mentioned that earlier. He felt it and he ran. He ran to the desert. That was back in chapter 2. He thought it was his moment to free Israel. It wasn't. He failed and he ran. Failure, and I think we all know this, right? When it does come, and it will, it touches the deepest parts of us as humans. Failure makes a statement about who we are, about our identity whatever whatever it is that we're trying to to be in that moment or prove in that moment or accomplish by that the statement is when we fail the statement that's being made is you're not enough you don't have what it takes and that hurts if you don't have if we don't have the spiritual resources to deal with that in Christ we're going to run hide escape from those feelings And there's a lot of different ways that we could do that. Many of you know that. You you know it in your own life. What's your coping mechanism? How do you cope with failure? We all have one. Moses ran. Uh, Some people hide behind their own arrogance or their pride, kind of projecting some sort of, like, I have it together exterior. Some people hide behind food or kind of numb themselves, withdraw by, you know, binge-watching Netflix or something like that. Or we escape to illusions of uh, sex or sports or whatever it might be. But really, those are all fig leaves. They're covers over something that our circumstances have revealed about us. Something shameful. Something we feel about ourselves. I wanted to try to be specific to you. I didn't want to be really vague. I mean, because we can sometimes paint really big pictures about the way that shame works. I was trying to think of a shameful experience in my own life. Something that happens on the regular or at least periodically, and I was thinking about how as a dad, um, when to my great shame, I will speak harshly to my kids. I'll be impatient, and I'll speak a harsh word to them. And when I do that, often I I might initially feel like I'm justified in speaking that way to them, and also part of me will pretty immediately feel the sting of shame that I've sinned. I failed them. I've fallen short in that circumstance of God's design for me as a dad to love and shepherd my kids. Now, when that feeling comes on, if I'm not aware of God, if I'm not aware of the gospel in that moment, um, that moment of failure, I will feel, I almost always feel shame, and I'm going to hide and if I'm not aware of the God, if I'm not aware of the gospel, I will hide in unhelpful ways. Hide like, maybe I'll go on the offensive. I'll seek to justify myself. Well, you deserve that. Kind of in my head. They deserve that harsh word. Or I'll go on the defensive. I'll leave the room. I'll get out, Get away from there, and I'll flip on my phone. I'll go to ESPN, get my mind out of it. There's a lot of different things that I can do, but the point is, failure gives way to shame and that shame causes me to want to run and hide some way somehow sometimes though thinking about failure our failures are not sinful sometimes we just aren't enough we we aren't we fail the exam or we don't have what it takes to accomplish the task at work or we didn't make the play on the sports field we fell short And sometimes our failures happen, not even because of us, because of circumstances around us or because of someone else. But in all those situations where failure happens, failure puts us in a position of vulnerability. We're exposed. We've come up short. So what, getting back to the question, what should we do when failure comes, when that shame that's associated with failure bears down on us. Let me take you back to the Word of God. Chapter 5, verse 22. Moses is feeling the intensity of his failure and shame. Chapter 5, verse 22 says this. Then Moses turned to the Lord. That verse, Exodus chapter 5, verse 22, circle it. That's a hinge, a turning point, if you will, turning to God, a a major moment in the book of Exodus, chapter 5, verse 22. Things change in Exodus from this moment on. Moses is mad here at the end of chapter 5. He's hurting. He's ashamed. Two questions that he asks in verse 22. Why have you done evil to this people? God, these people hate me. Why are you hurting them? What are you doing? And, other question, why did you ever send me? Shame. Self-doubt. But this response here is different than running to the desert. Moses the man is still in there. This is still Moses. Moses. We're going to actually authenticate that in the middle of chapter 6 with this genealogy that's coming up. Moses, with all of his, his sin and shame, it's still there, but he's doing something fundamentally different. Something that he didn't do before. The very thing that we must do in our moments of failure and shame. He turned to the Lord. Failure produces shame. And shame, thinking about Garden of Eden, folks, Adam and Eve... Shame says, run, hide, cover yourself. But the God of the Bible calls to us, just like he called to Adam and Eve. He's calling to us this morning, and he's saying, turn to me. Turn to me. Not to be ashamed again, not to be shamed, not to be condemned, but to embrace, be embraced by the God of of steadfast love that overcomes all of our failures. That's the good news. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what we proclaim here at Christ Community. This is why God sent Jesus. Romans three twenty three and 24 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we've all failed. And... All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. That's the good news. The good news is turn to God. The good news that we proclaim is not that God welcomes those who do not fail or do not make mistakes or only fail sometimes. The good news is that God welcomes people who fail all the time. He seeks Failures, He seeks sinners. He sent his Son to turn our hearts to him. What kind of God does that? You ever think about that? What kind of God seeks after failures, after sinners? He seeks the shameful takes our shame and casts it on his son, the Lord Jesus, who bore it on the cross. It is gone. The shame is gone, so that we instead, those who trust in him, would not live with shame, but would live with honor and love and acceptance and welcome forever. This is the good news that we proclaim. So, let me ask you this then. What does it look like to turn to the Lord? What I'm challenging with you, challenge you with in this moment is that in your moments of failure, that you would turn to the Lord. So what does it look like to turn to the Lord? Well, let's just admit this. It's, it's hard to turn to someone when you feel insecure, when you feel like um, you've been hiding for a while, or you want to hide what's wrong with you. But the call is to turn to Him. What does it look like? Just look at Moses' prayer. This is an honest prayer. That's what turning to the Lord is. It's just pouring out your heart to God. I was thinking of other examples in the Bible of honest prayer. I thought of Hannah at the beginning of 1 Samuel 1, where she wants a child so desperately, and she goes to God and just says, God, please, please give me a child. She was bitter in heart. She was releasing those things to God, asking him to move. She was turning to him. The Psalms are full of laments pain sorrow anguish injustices some of them some of the things they lament about are caused by themselves i've used psalm 60 as a model of lament for myself many times look here's the point turning to god some of you in this room you need to stop running from him and i don't know why you're running I don't know if you feel like you don't want to have anything to do with him, or you've never trusted in him, or you don't know him. You need to stop running. You need to turn to him. Some of you have been following him for a long time. You're trapped in sin, and you do not know what to do. You just feel like you, you need to get away. You, need to, you can't turn to him. You couldn't possibly. You need to turn to him. Stop running. Turn to him. God is calling you. You will receive overflowing grace. Which brings us to the second question. Why do we turn to him? Why would you do that? What do we do when we face failure? We turn to the Lord. Why would you do that? Why would you turn to him? Look at chapter 6, starting at verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my by my name the Lord, I did not make myself known. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners, verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians sold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant Chapter 5 started with the Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord? And God answers it here again. He first points back, in these verses right here, verses 2 through 5, he points back. He points back to the patriarchs, to the way that he dealt with them, and the things that he had promised them. He says, I appear to them as God Almighty, El Shaddai. That's what God Almighty means. This name it highlights God's sufficiency. The one, El Shaddai means the one who provides, the one who overcomes our insufficiencies, like making childless Abram into the father of many nations, Abraham. He did it for Isaac and for Jacob, who were not too good dudes, by the way. They were not good guys, but he provided for them out of his goodness and out of his grace. And when God says to Moses, I am El Shaddai, which is the first thing he says, the one sufficient for your forefathers, what he's doing is he's pointing Moses to his faithfulness. I was faithful to them, I'm going to be faithful to you. They needed me, you need me me too. I had what they needed, I will give you what you need too. And then he also points him to the presence. God points Moses to the present. I am We talked about that a couple weeks ago it's here in all caps as the Lord means Yahweh we talked about how that means that he's self-sufficient the fire that needed no fuel it did not burn up the bush it exists on its own he is self-existent dependent on no one we all depend on him and what we talked about was that that name means presence I will be with you and it means power you will succeed. You will do what I I command you to do. And while he's promising this, though, here in chapter 6, God makes this really curious statement. Verse 3, by my name, look at it again, by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And he's talking about making himself known to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the question is, does, it, does this mean, when God says this in verse 3, does it mean that God didn't use that particular name? Like God didn't identify himself as Yahweh to them? Or does it mean that they didn't know him, his character, in a particular way? And, he, and here's, here's the truth. It's debatable. It's a hotly debated topic. And for me, I, I actually am not sure... Um, on which side it is, whether he was, he never even used his name or whether it wasn't part of, just a particular part of his character that wasn't known. But what, what we do know is this. And I hope you're tracking with me here. The patriarchs did not know God in the way that he's about to make himself known here to Moses and to the people of Israel in Exodus. They didn't know him in this way. And so the question then is how did they not know him? What particular part of God did they not yet know that he was about to make known in Exodus? Let me ask the question again, but let me ask it in a more personal way. To whom has Moses, in this moment of his failures and insecurities, his shame, to whom has he turned? How is God making himself known in that? Or let me make it even more personal for you. To whom have we, in our failures, in our shame, turned? Or why should we turn to him? That's what this passage is answering. Look at verse 6. We're going to read verses 6 through 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. So, what's new? What didn't the patriarchs know about God yet? What is God making known about himself when he says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And this is what he's doing. This is what he's making known. That he is our deliverer. He is our redeemer. He brings us out, makes us his very own, giving himself to us. Look, in the book of Exodus, God is just getting started, folks. He's, we're going to see a whole lot more about who God is. We've titled this, this whole sermon series, The God Who Makes Himself Known. And He's going to make Himself known. He's going to show Himself to be completely sovereign. He's going to show Himself to be supreme over every one of those Egyptian gods. He's going to show Himself to be in control over all of creation. He's going to show His complete authority. He's going to show His mercy. We're going to see a lot of different things. But before we get to all of that, what God makes himself known to to us and to the people of Israel, to Moses as the Lord, as Yahweh, it means that he is a deliverer and he is a redeemer. So God our deliverer, I think we understand maybe more intuitively what that means, or at least a little bit more easily. Delivered, rescued from oppression and slavery. We're taken out, just kind of like a, like a Navy, Navy SEAL SWAT special forces team coming in and pulling somebody out of captivity, right? They're delivered. They've been delivered. But what does it mean that God is our Redeemer? The book of Ruth, a couple books over in your Bible, is a good help to this. You don't need to look at it. I'll just kind of give you a little summary of the idea of a Redeemer. At that time in Israel... Land ownership was tied up with, with uh, the family tree, with the family line. It's an inheritance. And in the case of Ruth, um, well, her, the family that she had married into anyway, the family line had dried up. Everyone, the heirs, the people who were going to inherit the line, had died. The land had died. And the land then would pass to an outsider unless someone came and redeemed it, bought it back. This is how a redemption would happen. First, it needed to be someone relationally close, like family. And two, you needed to pay a price that was equal to the value of what was being lost, potentially lost, so that it could be redeemed. So, redemption is incredibly relational. It's like family. And redemption is sacrificial. It's costly. And here, God says, I will redeem you. From this moment on, in Exodus, from verse 6 of chapter 6, going forward into Exodus, God will take on himself whatever the price will be to buy his people back. And God will do it. Because... He wants us. Look at verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That's marriage. This is what God is making known to Moses, what was previously not known to the patriarchs. God is our redeemer. God is our deliverer. God does not redeem and deliver grateful, wonderful people. We're we're talking about Moses, who we've already seen fail multiple times, and in verse 9, look at verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. God delivers and redeems broken people. He brings them out. He sets them free he pays the price he makes them his own he brings them to his place to his land that he promised so brothers and sisters in our failures in our moments of insecurity and doubt and pain sorrow we turn to God and this is why we turn to him because of who he so beautifully is He is a deliverer of those enslaved to the masters of this world, to our own flesh, our own sin, to the devil. He is a redeemer of the brokenhearted. He will do whatever it takes, pay whatever the price to make you his own and to bring you to his promised land of peace and everlasting joy. So, brothers and sisters, when you turn to the Lord, do you know that when you turn to him, you're you're turning to the supreme redeemer? To the complete deliverer? The one who's able to save you to the uttermost? So many of us spend our days as slaves. We act as if the cares of the world or the lusts of the flesh or the sins of our past are masters and controllers over who we are and how we live past, present and future. That those masters, those things that we've done in the past or the things that we're enslaved to now that they define who we are. I am a failure. Hear the word of the Lord, turn to the redeemer of your soul. Let's go back to that verse in Romans, Romans 3:23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is redemption for your whole self in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's Son came and paid the price to set you free. He paid the ultimate price for you. He shed his blood. He poured it out on the cross. He took your sin and your shame on himself so that you would be bought back, delivered out, and brought into relationship with him. Maybe you feel like you're still in bondage. Maybe you feel like you're still in bondage to some sort of a sin. You're enslaved to sin. You don't know how to break, break free from it. Look, look, you can't. You can't break free from that sin. You can't get yourself out. You cannot deliver yourself. You can't redeem yourself and bring yourself back. If you're struggling to obey God, to do what is right, and I'm talking to non-Christians and I'm talking to Christians right now, if you are struggling to obey Him, to honor Him in the way that you act, in the way that you live, you don't need more willpower. You need to know God more. You need to turn to him as the redeemer and the deliverer of your soul, the one who rescues slaves, who pays the price for freedom and makes them citizens of heaven, children of God. We're going to fail. We're going to fail. We're going to sin again and again. And you know what you do again and again? You turn to him. You turn to him again. You sin. We don't want to sin, but we turn to him again and again. Why do we turn to him because he is our deliverer and our redeemer, the price for redemption has been paid. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has died for you, so turn to him. We're almost done here. What's the outcome of turning to God? This is verse, verse 10 through the, that middle part of 7-7. This is what the outcome is. This is what happens when you turn to God. In verses 14 through 25, we have the family tree of Moses and Aaron. Brooke skipped over that. I told her to whenever she read it. I thought I'd save you guys the details. But what's interesting is it is bracketed, that that genealogy, the family tree of Moses and Aaron, is bracketed uh, by a curious statement on either side. Verses 10 and 11, and then again in verses 26 through 29, so I'm kind of, I'm looking at the brackets right now on either side of that. We have a similar statement. God reissues the command to Moses post-failure. Go get back in there. Get back to it, Moses. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And then in verses 12 and in verse 30, Moses says this. It's up on the screen. Verse 12 says, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And then verse 30, but the Lord said, but but Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? See it on each side. The genealogy authenticates Moses and Aaron as men. Exodus Exodus is not a book about this hero named Moses. It's about God. He and Aaron are humans, just like me and you. And Moses feels that. So when God says, go, he says, my lips are uncircumcised. And here's what he means. Anything that's uncircumcised is outside of, it's not part of, the promises and the blessing of God. Moses is essentially saying, my mouth hasn't experienced your transforming grace, Lord. I I don't have it. I haven't experienced your transforming grace, your redeeming love. Sometimes in life, after we've turned to God, after we've looked to Jesus as our deliverer and our redeemer, we don't feel any different. Moses feels like he's not really experiencing the grace of God in his life. And maybe you can identify with that. I certainly can. But the truth is, he has experienced the transforming grace of God. We have the, the privilege of knowing that he encountered God in the, in the burning bush. And we, we've seen how he's turned to the Lord here at the end of chapter 5. And his conversations with God... But we also know that he's experienced the transforming grace of God from chapter 7, verse 6. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Before he had not obeyed God, he wasn't wasn't listening and doing what God told him to do. And now here, Moses is doing exactly what God commands him to do. The outcome of turning to God is doing what God commands. We're going to pick this up um, in chapter 7 next week, but um, as we're coming to a close, let me just ask you this. Brother and sister in Christ, are you doing what the Lord commands you to do? That's the outcome of turning to God. It's the mark of someone who's been delivered and redeemed. Because make, make no mistake, we all have a master that we're following. There's no one in this room who is, who is not a slave to something or obeying someone. It's only a question of, who will it be? Jesus said this in John 8, verses 34 through 36. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free... You will be free indeed. Turn to the Lord. Turn to the Son. And you will be free indeed. He is your deliverer, bringing you out into his place of perfect peace and rest, into relationship with him. He is your redeemer who paid. The price that we could not pay to make you his forever. If you're a follower of Jesus, turn to the Lord. Turn to him again and again and again and live free. Free to obey his commands and flourish as God designed you to flourish in his world. And if you are not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you are enslaved to sin. You're a slave to your own passions. You're a slave to the devil. Freedom comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Turn to him this morning and you will be redeemed and delivered. You'll be a child of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for making us making yourself known to us again today. And I just pray, Lord, that you cause us to turn to you in our failures, in our shame, in our moment, and in our moments of comfort and peace, Lord, that we would turn to you The amazing God that you are, that you would come for us, that you would give yourself for us, the price paid for us by you. We praise you for all these things. Help us to live as your freed people, obeying your good word. In Jesus' name, amen.